if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway now, nine minutes past 10 o'clock. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday, the fourth morning of the eighth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. Really, really great stuff with Vince McKee as we talk about trying to defend uh, sports and defend schools, making sure all of them are open and available to the kids because, quite frankly, the kids are desperate without them. It's extremely important, and there is zero justification for the governor of the state of Ohio to de- uh, state of Ohio to deny any of them those things based on costs or any other reasons that they're using to justify uh, an end to those things. So, really great stuff there. And wow, uh, that was powerful, wasn't it? It was a two-minute speech by a radio broadcaster in Ventura County, California, speaking to his city council, calling for the firing of the doctors who were so wrong, uh, and to h- hold people accountable for destroying the economy and destroying the schools and so many other things there based on false premises. Uh, really powerful stuff there, and that's exactly what we have to do here as well. We need that kind of passion, and we need that kind of people. You know what he did, by the way? He didn't just go on his own radio show, and he didn't tell his callers just to call his radio show the way I'm doing right now. He went to his city council to make sure that he could be heard and to make sure that the uh, politicians who are making the decisions uh, the overreactionary decisions on COVID-19 so that they can hear from the people. And that's exactly what we, myself included, need to do. All right, let's pivot now. Uh, let's bring Peter Kersenow onto the program. It is Tuesday. That means it's Kersenow Day, that, Kersenow Day, and that means it's a great day on AM 1420, The Answer. Peter Kersenow is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's a Cleveland attorney. He's a best-selling author. He's the host of the Kersenow Report here on this station, and he's a columnist for the National Review, where he has been very busy in recent days and weeks. Peter, good morning, my friend. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, Bob. Uh, you know, it's uh, we're still in a weird time. I'm hopeful that we're digging out of it. Um, I think there are signs that we are. I also think there are signs that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is going to prevail in the election. I know that the conventional wisdom says otherwise, but remember how accurate the conventional wisdom was four years ago, and there are greater signs today that uh, Trump is going to win. And I, my own personal belief is, and I confess to being an inveterate optimist, but... My belief is Trump wins in a landslide, and I don't think that's a matter of just being optimistic. I think it's a matter of looking at the raw data and also looking at Joe Biden and concluding that there's no way in the world he can beat Donald Trump. 
Well, uh, I'm going to disagree with you, Pete, uh, not on your optimism and on your belief that there are more people in this country who would uh, prefer President Trump to the communist-slash-socialist uh, ideology being advanced by Team Biden right now and the AOC-slash-Bernie wing of the party. I don't disagree with you there. But I disagree with you that the president is going to win in a landslide because I'm not convinced we're going to have an actual election. Uh, I am afraid of mail-in balloting, and so is your friend Tom Cotton, who said the following. There's a grave danger of fraud from mail-in balloting. Let's be clear about the difference between mail-in balloting and absentee ballots. When you vote absentee, you submit an application, you expect a ballot, you get it, you mail it back in. There's a track record at every step of the process. These states like Nevada and New York that want to move to mail-in balloting, they're talking about sending a live, real ballot to every single person who is registered, whether they wanted one or not, whether their address has been verified, whether they're alive or dead. And then they're going to allow ballot harvesting as well, which is when party activists can come around and pick up hundreds or thousands of those ballots and return them without any knowledge of what coercion they may have used or what tactics they may have used to pick it up. Look, this is so ripe for fraud that in North Carolina in 2018, an entire congressional election was invalidated and had to be rerun. The fact that the Democrats in places like Nevada are already trying to change the rules goes to show you just how nervous they're getting about this election so pete uh tom cotton agrees with you on the last part there they're nervous about this election because perhaps they also see president trump winning and that's why they're going to do everything they can to make sure there isn't a fair election yeah um i don't disagree with that that's that's a valid concern for a number of years one of the one of the two principal things that uh, the u.s commission on civil rights looks at is of course all manners of discrimination but also voting rights what stuns me uh and i'm stunned on a regular basis you would think i would not be stunned after nearly 20 years on the civil rights commission but it's truly extraordinary the extent to which the media misrepresents flat-out lies or ignores what the true facts are with respect to voter fraud. They keep saying there's no such thing or it's just minor one here and there, and, and that's just completely false. Of course, if I were to stop right there and say, well, there's a, a big disconnect between what the media does with respect to voting and all the falsities that they promulgate there, um, but, <laughs> you know, that, that's not the only one, obviously, but that's just one of them. And you keep hearing yeah. this canard over and over again. So it's a, it's a legitimate concern, Bob. I agree with Tom Cotton on that. I think that's something that needs to be monitored. Uh, going back to my inveterate optimism, it's that when I look at voter fraud, my hope is this, and this is what we've seen in the past, that, yes, it uh, can disrupt elections. I keep thinking about, most prominently, a uh, mayoral race in Miami that was overturned as a result of, of fraud. But, uh, and it was just extraordinary what, what you were looking at there. But in many cases, the fraud is uh, confined, and I don't mean to say confined, but it, it occurs in areas in which Democrats have control of all the processes. Um, that's bad, but you those areas generally don't turn red states blue. I'm not saying it won't happen here when you've got you know huge amounts of election uh, or, or uh, mail balloting going on, but I'm hopeful that it won't flip electorally. Say. A um, you know an otherwise red state to a blue state. It needs to be monitored, but I still think 
that Trump wins for the following reason, and I think almost everybody uh, who's listening knows this out of common sense. You can't have in most of the major cities in the United States a significant spike in crime. In some places, it's 200%, 300%. I mean, it's extraordinary. And we're talking about violent crime, murders, all, all manner of crimes. And have one major party simultaneously call for defunding the police and have that a winning issue. Um, I think that most normal people are looking at this and saying this is nuts. They, they don't want to have anything to do with it. They love the United States of America. They don't think the United States of America is a systemically racist place. And in addition to that, they're concerned about their kids, their livelihoods, their businesses, so on and so forth. And they're wondering what the heck are the Democrats saying at this particular point? The polls show there's an extraordinary poll. There, well, there are two of them. There's one that I saw that says that seventy-seven <clears> percent <throat> of conservatives will not disclose who they're going to vote uh, to pollsters. In contrast to in this one poll, twenty-two uh, percent of progressives or liberals. So when you're looking at that huge disparity, contemplate what that means for the accuracy of polling that shows Biden ahead. And all these polls now are narrowing. There are several polls now that show Trump in the lead. I just don't believe, um, and again, belief is not sufficient, but I've been around for a while. I've looked at these things, and we have the example also of the 2016 election when the polls were so wildly off for several reasons that pertain even today. So I think the the smart money is on Trump in a landslide, not by two or three points, okay. even factoring in the voting fraud. Pete, let me let me uh, bring another element to this in play here, and let's talk about the debates. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the first debate isn't being scheduled until September 29th, which is very upsetting to the president, who thinks they need to be earlier because right. of early voting. And I completely agree. There's going to be people who've cast their votes before they even see these two side by side. And Democrats uh, are are urging Joe Biden to cancel the debates altogether, to not stay, show up for them. They think that he can just sit there in his basement, not being Donald Trump, and that's his best uh, uh, course to victory. Uh, just don't be Donald Trump and you will win. If he has to go up there and actually mumble and bumble and stumble his way through a debate, they fear it's going to hurt his chances to win. The New York Times yesterday, quote, The debates have never made sense as a test for presidential leadership. In fact, one could argue that they reward precisely the opposite of what we want in a president. When we were serious about the presidency, we wanted intelligence, thoughtfulness, knowledge, empathy, and, to be sure, likability. It should also go without saying, dignity. Yet the debates play an outsized role in campaigns and weigh more heavily on the verdict than their true value deserves. That's just one example of Mm -hmm. far leftists uh, saying that uh, Biden should not grant Trump the, the, uh, you know, the opportunity to debate him because he's already losing trump is and the only thing that can happen here is that biden could be hurt yeah uh, bob you may recall that several months ago it was late spring you and i discussed the fact that there wouldn't be any debates i firmly believed that they wouldn't debate because it's a lose-lose proposition for biden yes it hurts if he doesn't debate. It's going to hurt him if he doesn't debate. That's unequivocally the case. Trump can make all kinds of hay out of that. But it's even worse if he debates. And I believe internally, the Biden campaign always thought that they could not let this man debate. They'd rather take the the better of the two bad alternatives, and that is 
Don't debate. Take the hit there. But if you allow this guy to debate, all bets are off. I mean, it will become abundantly plain that this guy is, does not have the capacity to be president of the United States. The New York Times and these other uh, organs of the left and of Democrats have further smirched themselves, if that's even possible. And we'd also predicted that that was going to happen. We, would, we thought that they would rationalize, they would say words to the effect that to to debate Trump would be to dignify him, dignify his racism, dignify his whatever it may be. And sure enough, it was only about a week or two after I think you and I had that discussion, if I, if I remember correctly, that Tom Friedman first came out and said, well, there shouldn't be a debate. Yeah. This was predictable as could be. And I don't think it has, at least as far as the media is concerned, any saliency. They're preaching to the choir. In other words, the converted already believe they don't want uh, Biden to debate. They're hoping they can whistle past the graveyard of the election, hoping election cycle, hoping that somehow the pure anti-Trump vote and all of the concern about COVID and the economy and everything else will push this guy over the edge, I, I, over the line. I don't believe it's going to happen. We also see polling now that even though the the truth is that conservatives are reticent to say who they're going to vote for. We see polling showing that the gap is narrowing, and at least two polls show Trump in the lead. So um, you, you can't, in this environment, say defund the police and see Portland on fire, Seattle going crazy, all kinds of other things, just crime spike, uh, spiking in virtually every major city. Dumbest thing imaginable. Peter Kirsten, I with this, Peter. I have one more thought on the upcoming election. I want to get out of you, and then I want to uh, pivot to systemic racism in America, or the systemic racism canard, as you have written about twice now in the last two weeks. That's coming up uh, with Kirsten now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Okay, 1025 now. We continue with Peter Kirsten out. Pete, uh, I want to just ask one more question about the election upcoming before we talk about race in America and racism, which you have written extensively about. Uh, Joe Biden, if he wins the presidency, according to the left, this is the new talking point. Uh, Donald Trump is not going to relinquish power. Uh, April Ryan was on CNN yesterday fantasizing, quite literally, openly, verbally fantasizing about a split screen on January 20th, 2021. I'm not going to play this because I don't want to give it that that attention, but uh, she said that she fantasizes about a split screen on one side of the TV screen. Joe Biden will be uh, being sworn in uh, as president, and on the other side, Donald Trump will be being dragged out of the Oval Office by uniformed military or police because he's refusing to go quietly and will not uh, will not uh, give into a peaceful transition of power. So uh, they're saying that he's going to challenge the election. And President Trump, for his part, hasn't necessarily denied that because he also, as you and I talked about, is fearful of um, you know fraud in a potential mail-in ballot. So what do you think of uh, these these predictions by the left that Trump will not surrender power in January if he loses? Yeah, I think a couple of things. First of all, the left, as we know, uh, habitually engages in projection. Uh, I always maintain that Tucker Carlson uses used my line, and I'm still I still maintain he got it from me, and that is, um, you know, the left. What they're accusing you of is what they're up to themselves. And consider the examples that we have. They keep saying Trump will not peacefully leave office, but for the last four years, we've seen the Democrats 
claw and scrape and scratch to hold on to the presidency by engaging in the greatest political scandal of all time, that is the Russia hoax, where they attempted, all the evidence now is coming out, they actually attempted to thwart the election of Donald Trump by having the FBI and other intelligence agencies spy on him, then disrupt the transition, and then get him removed in what could only be, I mean, properly described as a coup. I can't believe I'm actually saying that, but that's the most accurate description. And Hillary Clinton, for the last three years, has been refusing to accept the election. She's the one clawing and scraping, hoping to hold on to some semblance of the fa- of, of this fantasy that she's the president. I think that it's the left we need to be concerned about not giving up any type of power. The Obama administration didn't want to give up any power. Clinton thought that she had won the presidency and maintains to this day that she does. Uh, but Donald Trump has a remarkable facility for driving the left completely insane, more accurately, causing the left to reveal their insanity. This is truly astonishing. And the fact that we have people who are appearing on national television saying that demonstrates the extent of this illness. So I don't credit them with with anything whatsoever. If they want to use that as a talking point to gin up their base, fine. If they couldn't have ginned up their base over the last three and a half years with all the false claims they've been making, again, a matter of projection, then they've got no hope whatsoever, and maybe they don't. Maybe they've looked at the fact they've woke, they've awakened in the morning, and they find out that they've nominated perhaps the most incompetent, the, the worst potential candidate in the history of presidential politics, and that's saying something. Maybe not the worst, but at least in modern times, you'd be hard-pressed to think of somebody as incompetent as a Joe Biden who has spent more than 40 years in Washington with precious few accomplishments, has been going in the opposite direction of where the country has been going for a long, long time, and to this day has no clue where he stands or, frankly, where he is. (laughs) I was going to say he doesn't have a clue about much about his uh, surroundings right now, uh, based on uh, the way he presents himself. All right, Pete, we're going to take this time out here for the bottom of the hour news on the flip side. I have two articles in front of me. One is the systemic racism canard. The follow-up is the systemic racism canard's consequences. We're going to focus on that when Peter Kersenow returns with us on AM 1420, The Answer. The Answer, now heard through downtown, through greater Cleveland on 102.5 FM. All right, 10.34 now. We continue with Peter Kersenow on this Tuesday edition of The Authority. Thanks so much for being with us. Peter Kersenow is, uh, among many other things, as I tell you, a columnist for the uh, National Review, which you can read at uh, 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 nationalreview.com online. Peter, you wrote over a week ago uh, about the systemic racism canard in America. Very important information. You talk about discrimination, uh, and you talk about uh, in in terms of uh, uh, admissions policies at colleges and so on and so forth, all kinds of other things that actually give people of color, minorities, advantages over whites in this quote-unquote systemically racist society. But then you also talk, or you followed up now with uh, a new piece, the systemic racism canards consequences, and you talk at length in this about the difference between racial disparity and racism, between racial disparity and systemic racism and discrimination. The best example of which, of course, is in our schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about the impact of this allegation of racism simply because of racial um, uh, disparity? Right. We, you can see, Bob, and I know all of your listeners have, you know, just maybe even tangentially noticed this gradual evolution 
of the concept of discrimination um, where merely unequal outcome with no intentional discrimination, no type of racism whatsoever, but an unequal outcome, whether that outcome is in employment rates, educational achievement, healthcare disparities, whatever it may be, but a disparity equals discrimination. And that's false. Because what will happen if you simply say that the, an unequal outcome is the result of discrimination, if you misdiagnose the cause, then you're going to come up with the wrong solution. And sometimes that can be catastrophic. And that's what we're seeing right now in a host of areas. The most notable one, and that's why I've been writing a series on systemic discrimination, the most notable one is what we're seeing right now. The, the conflagration that's going on across the country is based on this supposition that the George Floyd incident was not a one-off, that it was a reflection of cops on a disproportionate basis, overwhelmingly attacking, shooting, killing blacks. And that is false and has been false for quite some time. But it's also in every other area where you see a disparity. Now, the, the reason, um, uh, and many of us are passionate about this, is, again, if you misdiagnose the problem, the remedy is going to be wrong. But worse than that, the remedy could be disastrous. And that's why I wrote the follow-up with respect to school discipline. First is a premise, Bob. Um, this whole, it, it was called a canard in the article. That wasn't my choice. National Review editors called it a canard. I called it a lie. It's a lie because I think most Americans understand it to be false. That means that knowingly this is being repeated as false. That's a lie. And it's doing considerable harm. That is, a mere disparity equals discrimination or racism. And we see it everywhere. I see you can... You can all of your listeners can see it on television, radio, when they read things, they talk about systemic racism as if it's a given that every gap is a result of, or not everyone, but many of them are a result of some type of discrimination. The truth is, for the last 60 years, there's been a multi-billion dollar apparatus that's been constructed on the foundation of multiple constitutional, statutory um, prohibitions against discrimination, and also ordinances, you name it. And there has been a multi-billion dollar apparatus with respect to the number of institutions, agencies, federal agencies like DOJ and uh, the, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of, of Justice, the Office of Civil Rights, the Department of Education, virtually every single department of government has their own Office of Civil Rights. Billions of dollars is expended with respect to Thousands of attorneys, thousands who enforce, and not just attorneys, but you've got inspectors, compliance officers, a whole host of individuals whose only job is to make sure that people are treated equally, and they've had phenomenal success, incredible success in that regard. This has been going on for 60 years. There are so many protections against discrimination, and again, there's racism in this country, and there's discrimination in this country. We're talking about systemic racism. If you're talking about systemic racism, though, you can make a plausible case. Not just plausible. It is, it is clear. For the last 40 years in academia, those who've been discriminated against have been white and Asian. More recently, Asians in a very virulent fashion. In fact, we currently have you know, the, the famous Students for Fair ad, um, admissions against Harvard, a group of Asian students, where the evidence clearly shows that, uh, let me give you just some examples, not just Harvard, but over the last several decades, 
virtually every school of any size, and by that I mean you know state schools from you know, Ohio State to Kent State to Minnesota to California to New Mexico, virtually everyone has favored the admission of blacks and Hispanics over white and Asians. And we're not talking about a small amount. In, in some schools, we've got copious data on this, in some schools, the uh, preference that blacks and Hispanics enjoy over similarly situated whites and Asians is not by a factor of 5% or 10% more likely to be admitted over a similarly situated comparative, but at some schools, you're 500 to 750 times more likely to be admitted based on your board scores and all objective criteria versus white and Asian comparatives. That's extraordinary. And that isn't just confined to academia. In almost, in not almost, let me, let me just say in a large number of employment settings, employers, corporations, law firms, they bend over backwards to find qualified black and Hispanic applicants. They go, I mean, they expend extraordinary time and sums to recruit people and they often recruit people who don't have the same objective qualifications as whites and Asians. And then when it comes time to, you know, if the COVID pandemic, for example, resulted in 40 million people losing their jobs, well, hard assessments need to be made. It was, it was horrible. It was tragic. So many people lost their jobs, and we can go into the reasons as to whether or not that was even necessary. <clears throat> but nonetheless... Millions and millions lost their jobs, and almost every company went through an analysis, and very detailed analysis based on demographics. Not only did they, the first analysis determine, you know, who do we need or who can we lay off and still continue to function as an enterprise, but there was another analysis going on, and you can talk to labor lawyers across the country, and that is the analysis was trying to determine whether or not the demographics of the layoffs would be such that there might be a discrimination charge, and you would bend over backwards to make sure that that didn't occur. So this is going, I'm just giving you a, a couple examples, but it, it happens in a host of arenas in this country, in this society. The lie of systemic racism is poisonous because what it does, not only does it divide the nation, but it causes us to adopt the wrong prescriptions for inequality. And school discipline is merely one of them. Um, I'll make this very quick, but in 2015, the Obama Justice Department and Education Department sought to remedy the fact that blacks and Hispanics were disproportionately suspended and expelled from schools by a huge margin compared to whites and Asians. So long story short is they issued some guidances that at the end of the day could cause significant problems for jurisdictions for school districts that had disproportionate expulsions and suspensions for black students and Hispanic students. And as a result, in the following year, the disparity between blacks and Hispanics on the one hand and whites and the Asians on the other in terms of suspensions and expulsions virtually disappeared. Okay? Pete, but before you go on with that point, <clears throat> Pete, Pete, let me jump in real fast. Before you finish that statistic that you're about to say, why... Are blacks and Hispanics one equation and whites and Asians the other? Asian is not white. Asian is a minority. 
Asian is a minority in this country just like blacks and Hispanics are. Why is it that Asians are so commonly lumped together as, as if they were white? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I mean, that's a pet peeve of mine. I've always said the same thing, Bob. First of all, Asian encompasses a huge number of ethnicities, and you can't just lump them all together. But, but, you know, we're adopting, in effect, the left's racist approach to this, where they just lump people together. Give you another one. Um, uh, Blacks, people, uh, uh, immigrants from places like Ghana, and uh, Nigeria have higher educational achievement rates and higher median incomes than white Americans. So if this is such a systemically racist country, how is it that we exempted people from Africa? I mean, how did that happen? You know, and in addition yeah, to that, the, that's highest a great point. Earners, the highest earners are Indian Americans. I mean, th- this, is, this is just so nutty and ludicrous, but it's, it's uh, it gotten personal. So it's not about minority status. Yeah, it's not about minority status or minority ethnicities. It is about achievement. It is about, uh, dare I say, it is about family. It is about what we, you, you talk about all the time, Larry talks about all the time, and so on and so forth, that in certain cultural communities, the, the father and the family are, are de-emphasized, if not outright, you know, uh, um, uh, rejected, essentially. You know, the concept, BLM tells us, the concept of the nuclear family needs to be destroyed. The nuclear family exists in the Asian communities. The nuclear family exists in those communities of, of people from Ghana and Nigeria and some of the other spe- uh, specific uh, African nations of immigrants who come here. So in some places, um, we find out that, hey, you know what, believe it or not, uh, promoting uh, discipline in the home, promoting discipline in the schools, and I want you to finish your statistic on the discipline in a moment, but promoting those things actually does lead to achievement, and maybe it's not systemic racism that holds one group of minorities back, but other minorities flourish within. Yeah, well said, and that's what we see. If you look at similarly situated whites and blacks, everything is equal, including the presence of a father in the home, that is a two-parent family, mm-hmm. virtually every disparity between blacks and whites disappears virtually everyone. And when you look at the immigrants from Ghana and from Nigeria and Cameroon and other places who have higher median income than American whites, what you see is one common factor, and that is an intact family. So if you, it, but Boom. we're coming up with the wrong prescriptions, pres- prescriptions based on this presumed systemic racism that does actually more harm. And I know that your time is limited, Bob. I'll just leave you with one statistic with respect to school discipline. After the Obama... Yes guidance went into effect, and expulsions and suspensions were equalized among the races, guess what happened? You had thousands, over 100,000 more violent assaults in the succeeding year in schools because individuals who should have been expelled and suspended remained in the schools because of this nutty guidance that tried to, you know, ignore the fact that you had differences in behaviors among these students that caused these disparities. And 100,000, we had testimony before the Civil Rights Commission that that teachers were being beaten. One teacher had brain damage that we saw before us. Um, Students reported uh, over a million students uh, or at least a million school student days in the succeeding uh, year were lost as a result of students refusing to go to school because of safety issues. It became a debacle. So these are the kind of false prescriptions that are done to remedy a false narrative, and that is that there are systemic 
uh, racism problems in this country. A country that has elected a black president has had a couple of secretaries of state who are black, attorney generals, and so on and so forth, probably doesn't have huge problems with systemic racism anymore, at least in the last 20 years. And I would argue for the last 40 to 50 years, huge strides have been made. But if we keep focusing on the wrong issue because of political advantage to one side, then we're going to continue to harm the very people we allegedly want to help. Pete, um, that is extraordinarily important, and I know we're short on time here, uh, but I, I want to pivot to one other thing, and I'm so glad you told us, by the way, about that. You, you mentioned uh, the over 100,000 more assaults and so on and so forth. It's not just on students. It's on teachers, for crying out loud. These kids have no fear of being suspended or held accountable. They're beating up teachers. Now, I want to pivot just real quick in the two minutes that we have left here to something you and I talked about earlier, and this is the AFFH rule. I talked about this with Dr. Ben Carson on my program last week. This is also about systemic racism. The allegation is that um, white people don't want uh, African Americans or other minorities to move into their lily white neighborhoods. And that's why you only see low income, affordable, uh, subsidized Section 8 style housing in the inner cities rather than in the suburbs. Barack Obama wanted to move that housing or expand it anyway into the suburbs to improve diversity in those communities. This is what Dr. B- uh, Dr. Carson said in response to that earlier this or last week. You know, week. a lot of people have now accused the president of, you know, trying to, you know, protect lily white uh, suburbs from from people of color. Uh, what a bunch of crap, because those people who are saying that obviously are not aware of the studies. Even the Brookings Institute, a very liberal institute, has said that, you know, 35% of the demographic population in the suburbs in the 100 biggest uh, metropolitan areas are minorities. And, uh, you know, what we really are talking about is are we going to have an America where the local citizens are able, in conjunction with their leaders, uh, to come up with good solutions for housing? Or are we going to have a place where the government dictates to everybody what they have to do? Pete, I'll let you respond to that as long as you like to wrap this up. Yeah, I'll make it uh, pretty brief because there's a lot to say about this. This may have been one of the most pernicious rules ever developed by any administration when the Obama administration came out with this. And there's a lot of lot of things to unpack here. But what it would have done essentially, Bob, and I'm generalizing a little bit, is it would have given enormous power to the federal government to dictate housing policy, and it would have invested racial bean counters, literally racial bean counters, with the ability to determine where people were going to live on the basis of race. It, it centralized the ability to uh, uh, structure residential housing, uh, public housing, and the way suburbs interacted with inner cities and the cities around them, uh, cities at the central core of the suburbs, in a way that federal bureaucrats would dictate and not the local residents. If you are, say, in a Parma or in a Warrensville Heights or in a 
a Lakewood. You would have less authority, in fact, hardly any authority, to determine what kind of housing was going to be built next to you. Is it going to be multifamily housing, single housing? What kind of transportation services were you going to have? What kind of schools were you going to have? Were you going to have busing, for example, or no busing? And all these things were going to be dictated in large measure from Washington. It was an extraordinary power grab that was the essence of socialism. Kudos to Ben Carson for recognizing the extraordinary danger. And by the way, in doing all these things, these localities would have had to expend hundreds of billions of dollars in the aggregate to comport with the dictates, the centralized dictates of Washington. There was, there, you could not have found something more Soviet in its approach. It would have been extraordinarily damaging, damaging on a whole host of levels from education to transportation to housing. But the Obama administration saw this as an incredible attempt to centralize power within the federal government and impose their values on different regions, different communities. This was a very close call. Pete, I apologize that I made you answer that with a short period of time. Uh, next time we chat, we'll get into this in a little more depth. I was also reading an article you wrote advising Ben Carson away from this. The, of course, he is Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, so it matters. But great stuff in the short term. Peter Kirsten, I'll thank you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Bob. You got it. 10.53, final time out. Back after this. Powerful stuff there from Peter Kersenow. I'm still trying to figure out why Peter wasn't on uh, in Uncle Tom. <laughs> because uh, Peter Kersenow, of course, is a good friend of Larry Elder's, and Larry's uh, movie is all about people like Peter Kersenow, black conservatives who um, have fought the good fight uh, and who's had their eyes opened about the reality of the, the racism of the history of the Democrat Party and about the lies Democrats tell blacks uh, about what they need and what they can do for them. That's what the movie is all about. A little trailer here, a little quick teaser of Uncle Tom if you have not yet seen Larry Elder's documentary, UncleTom.com. actual day, but I remember the emotion that I felt when it, when it happened. I'm often asked, was there an epiphany? I started asking questions. As I became more politically aware, a lot of the way that I saw things began to change. All of this information I've been taking in for several years. A continuation of these kind of contradictions. I had bought into all of these lies. You begin to see what the real agenda is. That's usually how that red pilling process begins. Black America is starting to get it. People are starting to realize what's going on. Black America is starting to get it. You heard from Candace Owens there, among the many black voices of black conservatives who said their eyes were opened, and it was such an epiphany and so incredibly important. Incredibly important, And that's why the left doesn't want you to see that movie. If you have not yet seen it, go to UncleTom.com, UncleTom.com, and uh, download it, watch it. Uh, save 20% off the price, by the way, of the promo code CLEVELAND. And it's such an important movie. Peter Kirsten now just outlined so much of it. The allegations of systemic racism in this society, which are false, are only hurting black people. 
and people like Herman Cain and and uh, and uh, you know Candace Owens and Larry Elder and so many others in that movie explain exactly how and why. That's all the time we've got today. Thanks to Peter Kersenow for a great conversation. Thanks to Vince McKee talking about COVID nineteen school and sports as well. Make sure you go to his website and sign the petition to save sports this fall for our students. Be well, be safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Enjoy the silence.